Leadership's the subject of many books, and I've been through five leadership courses myself, an MBA program, and read dozens of books on the subject. I teach leadership at the college level at California Polytechnic Institute, Pomona, and California State University, Fullerton. In all of my studies, I find that leadership is like religion. Each method has a different approach from a different cultural perspective, but all come to some universal truths. Welcome to 501c3BS, busting the myths of the social sector and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco director of the Gianneschi, and your host for this podcast journey. In all of my studies, I find that leadership is like religion. Each method has a different approach from a different cultural perspective, but all come to some universal truths. Number one, it's essential to know the difference between management, supervision, and leadership. Management is simply about taking care of things, your programs, your facilities, your money. Supervision is about taking care of people, your staff, your volunteers, your funders, your board, your partners. But leadership is about inspiring people to work together for a shared vision. One can be a great manager or supervisor and not be a leader. One can be a great leader and not manage or supervise well. However, if one is a great leader, They have inspired others to manage and supervise well on their behalf because everyone wants the team to succeed. Number two, not everyone wants to lead or should lead. In my classes, we play a leadership game I call the four animals. It's a game I learned in several leadership programs and different versions. I also play this with my employees when I start a new leadership position. The game consists of four animals, a lion, a hawk, a beaver, and a turtle. I draw a picture of each and post them on the four sides of the room. I tell the participants to find the animal with whom they feel the most kinship in terms of qualities that reflect their leadership style and their personality. In every class, there is a diversity of animals. I tell them to talk for about 10 minutes about what qualities they feel the animal has with which they relate. Then the group picks a spokesperson for the group to tell us all in the class what they learned about themselves and their spirit animal. It breaks down pretty much like this. Lions and beavers like to work in groups and are very social. Turtles and hawks prefer to work alone or with a single companion. Beavers and turtles like to work in the details while lions and hawks like to be up high and see the big picture. Hawks don't like the details. They look for that big vision. However, if they see something out of place, they can swoop down and take care of it. These are often your A-type people who enjoy leadership roles. They don't mind being alone. They like to be up high looking at the vast vision. They glide on the political winds of change. They are often natural-born leaders. Lions are often great natural leaders as well. They like the big picture. Anyone who's ever owned a cat knows that they go to the highest perch in the house. They can be very nurturing to their pride, pride in terms of a team, not ego, but they can be brutal to outsiders. They are protective. They can buck trends. Cats don't do what you tell them like a dog. They do their own thing. Beavers. Beavers don't usually try to lead, but often lead from behind. When pressed into leadership, they can be outstanding leaders, but are generally uncomfortable in the role. 
They are very social and like to work on nitty-gritty details in groups with other beavers. They get nerdy about the details. They hate the big picture, but can often motivate a group to be more beaver-like. They can build marvels of the universe. Turtles are usually your introverts. They don't love being around others. They work quietly alone, slowly and methodically, and duck into their shells for protection. They don't usually try for leadership positions because that would mean talking to many people, but they are often secretly wishing they were more open and extroverted. Turtles are the most misunderstood. In staff meetings, they can often go an entire session without speaking. People overlook them. They are often thought of as unimportant if considered at all. But turtles analyze everything, process it, and think deeply about it. When they do talk in a meeting, you'd better listen, because what they say may be the most important thing said all year. What they say will be well-reasoned. The details that I just laid out for you of each animal is not something I would just tell them. The participants will generally tell me these traits. My point with this exercise is to show my leadership class that everyone has their superpowers. Everyone is important. Turtles need to be respected as turtles. They may one day evolve into a hawk and lead a team. I myself went from turtle to hawk. But they are just as crucial when they are a turtle. If leaders know everyone's superpower and work with people on their teams, they will have stronger teams. It is perfectly acceptable for turtles to be turtles and beavers to be beavers. We need them as valued members of any team. Turtles and beavers also lead in their beaver and turtle ways. Most importantly, people evolve as teams evolve. Number three, inspiration is about vision. The reason lions and hawks usually end up leading is that they strive to see the big picture. We need teams in which most people are deep in the details to be productive. But we need leaders to be above the fray, seeing what is coming down the road and how we are approaching it. Someone has to drive who can see the road ahead. Someone who can articulate that vision to the beavers and turtles and sell a singular vision to the lions and hawks will create a strong team. But what is vision anyway? Is it some extraordinary apparition for gurus or saints? No. Vision is nothing more than sight. Vision is looking in the right direction from the right vantage point to see what is coming and where you are going. To have vision then, one must have a great vantage point and know which direction to look. That requires knowledge and experience. Knowledge gives you a loftier view and experience tells you which direction to turn. A great leader stays informed of internal data, evaluations, and research. From internal processes, leaders continuously evaluate their internal organization, people, and programs. They know what is working and what is not working. They know exactly where they are and where they need to go. But the leader is also well-read on upcoming trends, model programs, and new ideas. As leaders network, they get ideas from other leaders. They have a peer group of other leaders with whom to compare notes. They are futurists. They look like an oracle because they know things others do not. Experience is about experimentation, pilot programs for something greater. A great leader tries things in small, safe ways and records the result. When they get the desired effect, they scale that effect up. When things fail, they learn from it and move on. Successful experimentation we call innovation.
learning from failure, we call grit. People always think innovation is about creativity. It's not. Innovation is simply the scientific method, trial and error at work, experimenting small enough in that is barely noticed, and only scaling large when one succeeds with proof of concept. Scaling up success is done with supervision and management. When one fails in an experiment, the snafu is small enough not to draw attention. In her TED talk, Angela Lee Duckworth says that grit is the number one predictor of a student's success. It is essential to fail small and learn from it. Pilots teach us it's important to take calculated risks and success can't come until you find out what didn't work. I love grit. I look for it in those I hire. Someone who is gritty has a mindset to fail up. Each time the horse bucks them, they get right back on and they handle the situation. Eventually, they will be able to ride any horse because they have mastered the experience. When one climbs the mountain of knowledge to achieve a vista, we can see what is coming and where we have been. When one has experience of what works and what doesn't, we can find our direction. We are ready to drive. Number four, leadership is about making other leaders. Nothing is more inspiring than to be empowered with free will and the respect to make your own decisions. Parenthood is both a great example of leadership and a cautionary tale. The best parents make it their mission that their offspring will do better than them. My favorite book is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. It's a book about a prophet leaving a town and giving them the secrets of the universe in a beautiful poetic form before he goes. And when he's asked about children, the prophet says, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you yet, they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backwards, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are set forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrow may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves the bow that is stable. Now what if we applied this same passage to those we lead? Your team comes through you, but not from you. And though they are with you yet, they belong not to you. You may give them your guidance, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may employ their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls work in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backwards nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your team as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he also loves the bow that is stable. They do not belong to us. They have their own thoughts. They will lead beyond us. Our job then is to be the bow that sends them far into the world to hit their mark. 
As leaders, we give those we lead the vision, knowledge, and experience to become leaders in their own right. We send them out into the world furthering our cause. If we can do that, we plant seeds, we grow our mission, and change the world. To make those we lead into leaders, we must first give them confidence to lead. That confidence comes from giving them increasingly larger tasks. In the old days, people would apprentice, become journeymen, and then masters of their craft by increasing knowledge and skills. What if we took this approach with those we supervise? It is not uncommon today to have younger leaders of teams who are more senior. Maybe these more senior people are beavers and turtles who choose not to lead, but all have important contributions to make and things to teach. Each will lead at some point and should be allowed that time to shine. Number five, leaders have teams, not families. As I mentioned a cautionary tale when discussing parenthood as a model for good leadership at work, it is the same way that we empower our children with larger and larger teams to build their confidence. We empower our teams with larger tasks. That is a good use of the metaphor of parenthood for leadership. We allow our kids to walk to school on their own for the first time, but in actuality, we're hiding behind the bushes, making sure that they get there without any issues. We may do the same for our team members at work, give them a big assignment for the first time, but follow up to make sure it's done correctly. That cautionary part of the parent metaphor is that it can be very problematic if you treat your team as a family. Many people talk about their work as, we are all one big family, and what could go wrong with that? My cultural center used to say, we're one big family, and it always made me cringe. First, because I'm from a dysfunctional family. Not all families are happy. Second, you can't fire your family members when they don't perform well. A family dynamic can undermine your leadership. Should you have to fire someone or part ways with a partner, you will be the bad guy. Families don't do that. However, if you have a team dynamic, this will not be a problem. Team members are benched, traded, and let go if they don't perform. We're on a mission as a team, not stuck with each other as a family. We choose our team. We don't choose our family. Number six, leading is about delegation. Delegation is the most important thing we do as leaders. It is impossible to lead well without it. No organization can grow, thrive, or succeed without a team effort moving in one direction. When I take a new job with new staff members or hire a new staff person, I do a little ritual. I ask them, what do most people mean when they say, I'm gonna delegate this to you? Usually they say, I'm gonna delegate this, meaning I'm gonna give you all the stupid things that I don't wanna do because I don't wanna do them. And I'm gonna make you do them because I'm your boss and I can make you do it. Generally, that's how that phrase gets used. Oh, there's a mountain of paperwork over there. Let me delegate that to you. In another situation, oh, the trash needs to go out. Let me delegate that to you. And then I tell them what delegation actually means. When someone is a true delegate, they act with all the power and authority of the organization's head. Suppose the U.S. president sends a delegate to negotiate a peace treaty or a trade agreement with another country. In that case, that delegate has all the power and authority of the president of the United States. Therefore, to delegate is the most important thing we can do as leaders. And to be a delegate is the most powerful thing any member of an organization can do. A delegate is leading at that moment. It is impossible to manage an organization without delegation. 
one person cannot be everywhere. If I, as your leader, delegate a mountain of paperwork to you, it's because that paperwork is very important to our mission and I'm trusting you with all my authority to get it done correctly. If I delegate the trash to you, it's because that trash has to be shredded to keep spies from stealing our secrets. When I delegate, it's important. Now, when I give this speech to my charges, they change their attitude about delegation. Delegation has a whole different meaning to them. I have given them a great nod of respect with every small task they do moving forward. Their jobs are now much more crucial. Such respect can go a long way in leadership. Number seven, respect and mission are number one. In national polls, workers show that they don't work for money. When workers who are making a living wage enough to be comfortable are asked what is most important to them in their job, salary usually comes in around number seven on a list nationally. Number one and two on that list is always respect and importance in their position, mission. That sense of mission is more true in our sector where people are attracted because of that calling. To inspire a leader needs people to feel the mission in their work every day. We work for that mission, not for the leader. We are delegates for the mission in our community. It is useful to have a reward system in place and ways people can achieve. We can't promote everyone who does well. And some people we lead are not our staff, but our peers. So we must have ways to acknowledge success in other ways. Promotions cost money, but titles are free in our field. Can we give someone a better title who shows increased responsibility? Absolutely. Awards are great, but it can be just as important to take someone out for an appreciation lunch or send out a congratulatory email to the whole team acknowledging a team member's success. Punishment should always be done one-on-one, -on -one, but accomplishments should be broadcast far and wide. Number eight, leadership is sacrifice. In my first book, I explained leadership with a cartoon I invented and had professionally drawn for me by Irish illustrator Robert Stack. It's a cartoon of a leader with a flashlight leading a group into a cave with a bear getting ready to eat them. A team of people are stuck in this cave. Their cell phones are all dead. They know the cave forks into two tunnels. One tunnel goes to the surface and freedom, the other tunnel to a bear's den. They only have one flashlight, and the person they elect to go first with the flashlight, that is the leader. That person is most likely to get eaten by the bear. The leader comes to the fork and says, hey, we're going to go this way. They end up at the bear's den, and the leader gets eaten. At the funeral, all the others will say, he was a terrible leader. He just went off half-cocked. However, in another scenario, the leader asks, hey, which way do you all want to go? and the team agrees on a direction. They still end up in the bear's den. The leader still gets eaten. But this time at the funeral, the team says he was a great leader. In both scenarios, you're probably going to get eaten sometimes by the bear if you're the leader. It's just about how you want to be remembered. Leadership is lonely. It's hard to be close friends with people that you can fire at any moment. Successes are a team's success, but failures, they're all yours. You take risks and pay the piper. The same qualities that made you outstanding when you win demonize you when you lose. A great leader knows this is the deal you make when you lead. In the same way, a great parent knows you can't be friends all the time with your kids. Sometimes you have to discipline them, and a good parent keeps that authority and distance. In both cases, parents and leaders, there is mutual respect. Number nine, authority 
comes from the people you L-E-A-D, lead. Despite my five fellowships in leadership and my MBA, I learned most things about leadership in prison. In 1994, I took my first administrative leadership position managing a prison arts program. I was coming in from a 12-year career as a performing artist where I did not have to lead anybody but myself. I had no experience leading, supervising, or managing others. And now I would bring all that lack of knowledge and expertise to a high-security prison. I was in charge of five other artists, six inmate workers, and a few hundred inmate students. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did what they call in prison, frontin'. In other words, I pretended as if I knew what I was doing. I ordered people around, and I was a lousy boss and a worse leader. The fortunate thing for me was that wasn't uncommon in a place like prison. There were others much worse than me, and the inmates could see that I truly cared about them in the program. After I got to know my inmate workers, about three months in, one of my clerks walked into my office and closed the door. This can be a bit intimidating when a hardened gang member filled with tattoos walks into your office and closes the door behind him. We don't generally do closed doors in prison. He said, hey, Zoo, how long you been in prison? And I said, well, I've been a contract artist for about three years. He said, uh, how often did you come in? Uh, once a week for about a six week stint, I replied. He laughed. <laughs> That's not really being in prison now, is it? How long you been working here? I said, three months. That's not much time in here, is it? I've been here for over 20 years. We want your program, you know, our program to work, but you gotta let us help you. You have to stop telling us what to do in a system you don't know and let us tell you how to make it work. You feel me? I did feel him. I understood. I had to stop fronting and start listening. I learned that active listening was crucial. They had much to teach me, not the other way around. I learned that a leader doesn't have to be an expert on everything and tell people what to do. A leader has to know each person's expertise on their team, then use that knowledge and experience to become informed. The people with the best vision should drive, and sometimes that isn't the designated driver. My inmate crew were knowledgeable and experienced about working in prison far more than I ever would be. Sometimes they had to lead me. A leader's boss hires them to lead usually without the consent of the people that they're leading. They give them the title of leader. However, the people you lead, they don't have to sign off on that title. They sign off on it by deciding if you're worthy of following. We have all seen bad bosses and how they are treated by those that they lead. These teams are fractured doing the minimum to get by. They're all working for number seven, a paycheck, not respect or a mission. Our job as leaders is to inspire people to want to work for us because our teams must consent to be led. Once I started listening, we built trust. I learned to do this acronym, LEAD. L is for listen, listen actively. E is for engage, engage your teams. A is for add value. Add value to your work by finding others' superpowers and organizing them along a shared vision. And the D is for develop relationships with your team. Not friendships, relationships, something deeper. You're on a mission together. Some of my team members working in prison would have died for me and proved it once or twice by protecting me from others. I inspired them because of my sense of mission and respect for them. They inspired me because of their sense of mission and respect for me. 
My prison teams have been among the best teams I've ever led. And our final truism about leadership, number 10, change is slow. One of my best leadership teachers, Forrest Story, taught me a great lesson. He said, some people think that a new leader can come in and change things quickly because they are in charge. But most people hate change. Such change will be fought tooth and nail. There's only two ways to change things. You can fire everyone, wipe everything out like a hurricane and rebuild, and it takes a very long time. Or you can change things one small piece at a time, like evolution. And it takes a very long time. No matter what you do, it'll take a very long time to change. He was correct in most cases. People hate change thrust upon them. If you are coming in after a terrible leader or scandal, you can wipe everything out and rebuild, and you may need to do that, but it will take a very long time. There's two caveats to this lesson. There's two places where teams will allow you to change things quickly. The first is when you're a new leader. A new leader has about a 100-day honeymoon period where teams will indulge them and go along with changes even when they seem extreme or counterintuitive. But at the end of that time, if things are not flowing well and the teams have not been brought on board, catastrophe is just around the corner. It was this premise upon which I based my first book, and it's amazing how much you can do in 100 days with some vision and planning. The second caveat is when the idea to change does not come from the leader but from the team. This is where we get into the territory of Jedi mind tricks. A great leader learns how to make their ideas the team's ideas. Mastering this skill can make a leader into a cult figure. It is a true superpower. In order to master the skill, one has to let go of all ego and ownership of the idea. Once others own the idea, it will not belong to you anymore. A leader has to choose between owning an idea no one wants to do or giving up credit to the idea everyone wants to do. Because no one wants to do your idea. Everyone wants to do my idea. So how do you do this? Well, for an example, let's pick something we've all experienced in some form. When a new leader comes into a broken organization, many of the programs are not working or losing money. The people who invented those programs are invested in them. Their egos will not allow them to see the error of their ways, but they will have other excuses for the problems. No, the bad program's not failing because it's ill-conceived. No, it's due to the economy or the weather or some outside influence beyond our control. The new leader has two options. They can point out the flaws and set a course, which no one will follow that course because it's not the course that they set, but the course the leader sets. They will find all kinds of reasons it will not work. And when that leader leaves that organization, they'll say, see, I told you their ideas were no good and they wouldn't work. The second option is the Jedi mind trick. The new leader can play facilitator. This role takes more time, but gets the job done. Let's have a stakeholders retreat the leader says, and find a way through these issues. The leader puts together a report with the help of all involved. The report outlines the successes and the failures in neutral terms without assigning any blame. The report includes an evaluation that polls all the stakeholders and gets their ideas on what worked, what did not work, and how they should proceed. The leader knows what is wrong and how to fix it. They are an outsider with no horse in this race. They can see the issues. So can every other stakeholder whose ego is not wrapped up in the failures. Evaluation questions are written in a way that helps propel the ideas of the leader. For example, if the program failed because of a lack of marketing the program to the intended constituents, a question might be, 
how can our programs be improved? And one of the first choices may be better marketing to the intended clients. The leader can discuss this issue with the stakeholders. Now, when they come to the stakeholders retreat, they have a report showing what they, not the leader, want. And when marketing comes up on the whiteboard as an issue, they, not the leader, will solve it. The leader may want to partner with another agency that serves these clients to help with the marketing issue. But this will not be said out loud. Instead, the leader may ask while talking about the marketing bullet point on the whiteboard in front of everyone, would it be worth considering a partnership with an agency that handles our clients? Do we know any? Board member Tom will ask. What about X agency? Another stakeholder, Gladys, will say, yes, that's a good idea. X agency has a lot of our kids, Tom. That's a great idea. I bet they would love to partner with us. The leader replies, Tom and Gladys, that is fantastic. Do we know anyone who knows their CEO? Joan pipes up. I know her. By the end of the day, the issue's been resolved. Tom, Gladys, and Joan may have been the same people who caused the initial problem, but now they are the saviors who are fixing it, and it was all their idea. Later in the year, they may get an award for their leadership. Does it bother the leader that they will not get credit for their own idea, which they gave away to credit others? No, because the goal has been achieved and the team is motivated to do it. Is this a consensus building exercise or a devious trick? Yes, it is a bit tricky, but it isn't devious at all. The leader in the evaluation held up a mirror to the organization and let them see their own reflections so they could clean themselves up. The leader asked the right questions so they could come to the right decisions. And that, my friends, is leading. Once we've created a vision and a direction and inspired people, then we can talk about management, taking care of all the things, the programs, the facilities, the money. Great management comes from having a handle on our budgets and our inventory. If one has a great plan that is regularly used and updated with a reliable budget and realistic deadlines, management is easily handled by the team. Supervision is about taking care of people, our staff, our volunteers, our funders, our board. Most people think of this as leadership. If you are going to be an inspirational leader, it certainly helps to be a good supervisor too. Supervision comes down to creating the best team, incentivizing and building loyalty, and troubleshooting those teams when there are problems. We can talk about management and supervision another time. Or better yet, come be a Gianneschi Fellow for Social Impact Leadership. Take our course. We'd love to have you. Thank you to the Gene Eschy Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University, Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Music